KPCW News Time is 8.06. You're listening to the local news hour. This is Roger Goldman. It was a crisp three degrees the last time I checked. Let's find out if we're going to get things warmed up a bit today on the phone. I have Thomas Geboy with ABC4. Morning, Thomas. Morning, Roger. How are you doing this morning? Well, a little chilly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little cold in the Wasatch back. That's, uh, that's no doubt. Um, but you're going to hear me use this expression a bit as we go through the next couple of days because Utah weather is about to take us on a roller coaster. And really, really, we started as we began this week because we were kind of at the top of the roller coaster Sunday into Monday with spring-like temp, and then we came crashing down with our temperatures below our seasonal averages yesterday. And right now, this morning, we're at the bottom of the roller coaster, and we're about to start climbing back up. So after a really cold start to the morning, this morning, we're going to warm up pretty steadily as we go through today under mostly sunny skies, thanks to high pressure being in control. And our winds will also be out of the south, helping to ease those temperatures up closer to where they should be for this time of year. So the average high in Park City is right around 40 degrees. And we'll come in with a daytime high of 38, while Heber will likely see a daytime high in the low 40s. So this is a little bit warmer compared to what we saw yesterday. And then as we move into tonight, it's going to be turning cold. But instead of overnight lows dropping to the single digits, we'll mainly see those lows in the upper, upper teens and low 20s in the Wasatch back. So definitely a little bit better compared to what we're seeing out there this morning and what we saw yesterday. And then for our Thursday, we continue with mostly sunny skies. And with that southerly wind, temperatures will climb above our seasonal average. We'll get to around 44 degrees in Park City tomorrow. So we could climb above 45 down in the Heber Valley. But our winds will start to increase out of the south. And those are going to be the first signs of changes on the way. So on Thursday night, we'll see increasing clouds. It's going to be windy. And throughout the day on Friday, it will be windy with a system coming in from the west. That's going to bring us a chance of wet weather, mainly going to be snow in Park City. But with a temperature climbing to the low 40s, it could potentially start off as rain, especially if you're down in the Heber Valley. Roughly a 40% chance of seeing wet weather on Friday. But between Friday night and Saturday, an even stronger cold front will start to move in from the west. So we'll hold on to that 40% chance of wet weather on Friday night. And with the low dropping to around freezing, mainly going to be talking about snow, going to be windy at times. And then on Saturday, that cold front works its way in. The daytime high on Saturday is 39. But that's misleading because once the front moves through, much colder air will work its way in pretty quickly. We'll be looking at a 90% chance of snow on Saturday. And heavy snow will likely remain through Saturday night with the overnight lows dropping back into the teens in the Wasp back and on Sunday snow looks like a pretty good bet with a daytime high only time coming in at 26 degrees so we'll be going to the top of the roller coaster over the next few days kind of peaking Thursday into Friday all for it to come crashing back down as we move into and through this weekend and as we begin next week we'll see those temperatures level out a little bit upper 20s on Monday just above freezing on Tuesday and both days will hold on to at least a slight chance of snow Roger <coughs> it's obviously early Thomas but <clears throat> what kind of how strong a system do you think we'll get this weekend? Well, the, based on what I'm seeing, it looks like it could deliver us a little bit more snow compared to what we just got through from Monday into our Tuesday. And for the northern Wasatch Mountains, we actually already have a winter storm watch that's going to be going into effect just because the northern mountains will be favored from Thursday night to Friday. I do anticipate those alerts being extended a little bit further south, but based on the current um, forecast that we have it looks like maybe one to two feet of snow looks achievable now we'll have to see how that looks as we get a little bit closer with these high-rise forecast models but optimistic that we could be looking at some fresh powder this weekend that would be great thanks thomas we'll be talking to you You're tomorrow welcome. sounds good well let's find out what this roller coaster weather as thomas puts it means for conditions in the backcountry. on the phone i've got drew with the utah avalanche center hey good morning yeah the winds just hammered the wasatch range from 
from the tops of the mountains pretty much all the way down to the valleys yesterday that we even saw drifts um, on the road in Mill Creek. We saw limbs ripped off trees and, and stuck in power lines. Uh, and um, it doesn't take an avalanche expert to be able to forecast um, wind slabs in the mountains on a variety of aspects and elevations. Now, the tricky part um, with the strong winds is is that they don't preferentially load uh, the classic starting zones. Um, so it's you're going to have to um, be out there and, and, and um, be sneaky and clever and, and note that these drifts may be found a couple hundred feet down the slope. Uh, they could be found in odd um, aspects, um, lower elevations. You know, we rarely think about avalanches lower than 8,000 feet by and large in the central Wasatch anyway, but you know, there's areas like Neff's Canyon or in Parleys that are below 8,000 feet and the winds were significant and tremendous. Um, so we do have a moderate danger for any steep wind drifted slope. Um, Again, these are going to be on all aspects and elevations by and large. Uh, I would say probably most pronounced, if you will, north through east through south facing uh, um, at the mid and upper elevations, but still a few outliers. I don't think it's going to be warm enough to tip things towards wet avalanches uh, by the afternoon. I think there'll be more of a tomorrow issue. Um, but uh, wind slabs and cornice falls are going to be your primary concerns in the backcountry for today. Thanks. We'll be talking to you tomorrow. This is Roger Goldman. You're listening to the local news hour. Coming up, I'll be speaking with Tiffany Clausen, the director of the Utah Department of Alcohol Beverage Services, about developments in Utah regulation here in Utah. Then I'll be speaking with Miles Raderman about the upcoming Leadership Community Forum, and we'll finish our hour by chatting with Aaron Krentz, a 60-plus-year-old figure skater who just won the World's Masters Pair Figure Skating Championship. Let's do a little bit of local news. For those voting in the presidential primary, Summit County election officials recommend turning the ballot in early. KPCW's Connor Thomas has the details on Super Tuesday. March 5th is Super Tuesday, when Utah and 15 other states will cast their ballots in the presidential primary. Registered Democrats and those who requested a Democratic ballot should have received it in the mail by now. Republicans won't be holding a primary this time. The Utah GOP has opted to choose a candidate at its caucuses instead. Both parties caucus to elect delegates who pick local candidates for the general election. All of Summit County's caucuses are March 5th. Here's Summit County Clerk Eve First. I would encourage folks to drop their ballots if they are going to be voting um, by uh, in the Democratic primary. I encourage you to drop those ballots early um, so and, and then go to your caucuses so that you make sure you get to do both if that's what you want to do. In Utah, mail-in ballots must be postmarked by March 4th, the day before the presidential primary. You can drop off a ballot at one of the drop boxes around the county until 8 p.m. Tuesday, March 5th. Individual drop box hours may vary. There's good old-fashioned in-person voting March 5th at Colville City Hall, Park City Hall, Camus's Library, and the Kimball Junction Library. Residents can vote early at Kimball's Library and the county clerk's office in Colville. Early voting dates, drop box locations, and more caucus details are available at kpcw.org. To check your voter registration, find out how to register, and see where your in-person polling place is, visit vote.utah.gov. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. Formerly known as the Yarrow, the 182-room Doubletree Hotel sits at the intersection of Park City's two main entryways. KPCW's Parker Malatesta reports that the owner of the four-acre property wants to develop the site into five buildings. 
Four buildings would consist of 218 nightly rental condos along with restaurant, meeting room, and fitness space. The remaining block would have 52 affordable housing units and office area. Peter Tomai, who is serving as a representative for Singerman Real Estate's proposal, said the buildings would cover 60% of the property, the rest would be public space. The new site plan essentially takes all of that parking. Currently, there's about 185 cars of surface parking um, at the site and puts, you know, all of that and more underground is all dominated by asphalt today. And in the in the new plan, it would be largely green space. Tomai said the open space would include new trails that could connect to the pedestrian tunnel Park City is planning near Snoke Creek Drive. On the main lobby building, which is essentially located close to the where the front entrance of the Yarrow is today, we're proposing a, you know, a rooftop restaurant and bar, um, which we, you know, which we foresee being a, a really dynamite neighborhood gathering space. Um, you know, it has fantastic views. We've designed it with a lot of indoor-outdoor space. So, um, you know, in good weather, you'd be able to be outdoors. The site would also include retail space. At the ground level, all along the the south-facing property line, which is the property line facing, facing the Fresh Market grocery store, we're adding new neighborhood commercial there. At the last project meeting in January, planning commissioners continued to criticize the proposed building heights. The area is zoned for a maximum of 35 feet. The developer is seeking an exception for four of the five buildings, which range from 41 to 57 feet in height. So we were able to go back and take substantial height. I think every building, every building has dropped a minimum of um, three to four feet. And the principal building, you know, the building out on the corner of Park and Kearns, I think is, is, is 18 feet shorter than we had initially proposed. And all of the buildings along Kearns Boulevard, you know, we've kind of stepped them back in somewhat like a wedding cape design. The original proposal involved two buildings reaching 59 feet. The developer is also seeking an exception to include 354 parking spaces, nearly 100 fewer than is required by city code. A work session about the project is the second item on the Park City Planning Commission's meeting agenda Wednesday. A link to attend virtually can be found online at kpcw.org. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. Hebron Midway leaders will soon have a new tool to enhance residents' quality of life. KPCW's Grace Darfler reports the cities are part of a statewide well-being project. For the first time, Wasatch County cities are joining in the Utah Well-Being Project, a survey conducted by Utah State University. Dr. Courtney Flint is a professor in the Department of Environment and Society at USU. She says she's been administering the survey since 2019. The survey really helps uh, cities keep their finger on the pulse of how residents are doing. Heber City residents are invited to fill out the survey from now through the end of March. Midway residents will be able to participate in April. Once Flint's team collects all responses, they'll dive into the data and share reports with participating cities and towns in midsummer. Every city or town has its unique identity and its um, unique kind of perspective on things. Every year we seem to learn something new. 
The survey asks people about their personal well-being and how they think their city is doing. There are also questions about population, the economy, recreation, and demographics, among other things. We ask quite a few demographic questions, and not because we want to invade people's privacy, but it really helps us to um, kind of figure out, you know, how different groups of people are responding different ways. And it also helps us be more transparent about who we're hearing from and who we're not hearing from. It doesn't cost cities anything to join the survey. Some 44 cities and towns are taking part this year. Once results are ready, city leaders will be able to use and share the information USU collects. A link to the survey is available on Heber City's website. Midway residents can expect information later this spring about how to take part. Grace Dorfler, KPCW News. Park City's second annual Cardboard Sled Derby will bring community competition and fun this weekend. KPCW's Christine Willer reports. Racers with cardboard sleds bound by nothing more than duct tape, twine, and paint will slide their way to glory at the Derby Saturday. Park City Recreation's Spencer Mardinet says they created the event last year to bring the community together with some friendly competition. We really had inspiration last year of creating an event that got people outside, get some creative juices flowing. Matinee says the Derby's maiden run had some memorable moments. A group of six adults show up, set up a table, have a charcuterie board, have some drinks very early in the morning, and they had an incredible safari jeep as a sled. And it was just, it got us all excited for the rest of the day. Teams are encouraged to build outside the box with medals for most creative, farthest sled, fastest sled, judges' choice, and best wipeout. Park City Recreation is still working with community partners on other prizes. To keep things safe, all participants must wear helmets. After watching last year, it probably wouldn't be a terrible idea to have some sort of cushion at the bottom, so maybe a pillow but you know, we were able to avoid any uh, injuries last year. Teams are encouraged to build outside the box with medals for most creative, farthest sled, fastest sled, judges choice, and best wipeout. Park City Recreation is still working with community partners on other prizes. The Derby is Saturday, March 2nd at the Park City Sports Complex's Ice Arena Hill. Around 22 teams have signed up so far. Madinay says they're hoping for around 60 in the Derby. A link to sign up is available at kpcw.org. Christine Weller, KPCW News. The annual omnibus liquor bill passed the House, Utah House earlier this week and is expected to pass the Senate before the session ends. Here to talk about some of the significant elements of the bill and other regulatory developments is Department of Alcohol Beverage Services Director Tiffany Clausen. Good morning, Tiffany, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Tiffany, uh, first of all, did, did the bill make it out of committee yesterday in the Senate? I, I, I believe it was supposed to. It did. Uh, late in the day, there was a hearing at 4 p.m., and so it made it out of the House and is in the Senate. Okay. So let's start with the effect of the bill, and, and I assume it's expected to pass basically as it is now. Am I right about that? Um, you know, never say never. <laughs> um, the, the, the process is, of course, you know, unscripted, un, you know, unplanned. Um, so, you know, any anything could happen until the vote takes place and when the vote takes place. But um, you know, these lawmakers work really hard all year long um, on these policy issues and having conversations not only with stakeholders, but their colleagues in both chambers. So, um, you know, I, I, I 
suspect it will pass, and I think it will pass because of, of the hard work that the legislative leads, both in the House and the Senate, have been doing all year long to, to get support from their colleagues on this bill. So assuming that it passes essentially the way it is now, let's talk about some of the effects. First one I want to talk about is, is the effect on liquor licenses. How does the state currently determine the number of licenses it can issue, and how would the bill change that? Great. Um, so currently, um, there, there are different quotas for full-service restaurant licenses. That would be a restaurant that serves, um, can serve spirits, wine, and beer, right? So um, when you think about a national chain, you know, a, an Olive Garden would fall into <clears throat> that category, or a Chili's. Of course, there are non-chains, right, that, that fall into that category. And then there are bar licenses, which are bars. I think we all can, can kind of um, understand what a bar is and how it's different from a restaurant. That quota specifically is one license available for every 10,200 uh, people in the state of Utah. What our lawmakers have done, um, you know, they uh, issued a study and they took the data and some recommendations from that study and they've tweaked the quota and they have some denominators that basically would bring on licenses, both bar and full service restaurant licenses over a period of seven years. So um, the space won't have all of those licenses available at once. They will be sparsed out according to population over seven years. So um, it's a great it's a great first step. Again, they've worked so hard to try to balance economic development, small business needs with public, public safety and health goals and needs because we all want to continue to enjoy having low DUI rates. We want to continue to enjoy having low underage drinking uh, rates and statistics. And so it, it definitely was um, a lot of, it was very difficult for them to work on this issue. And, and I really appreciate them. So I, I believe you said that uh, currently it would be one for about approximately every 10,000 residents. What will the transition be to? What will the new number be? Um, over over the seven so over seven years, you will see that transition um, of course differently every year. Sure. But at the end of the seven years, it would be one license for approximately every like I think seventy three hundred people. Do you have any sense as to how that compares with the uh, bar population in other states? You know, every state. Um, so we're not the only control state. There's seventeen other control states. Um, but when you when you look at other control states and o open states, mm -hmm. so that would be states, right, that aren't control states, everyone is so different in how they calculate their quotas. And I won't get into the nuances of that, but it gets very complicated. So no state, you really, it's hard to have an apples to apples situation. I will say, I can quote Representative Burton from mm -hmm. the committee hearing last night, this will bring on new and additional licenses in both the bar and full service restaurant space. However, uh, Utah will still remain one of the most um, narrow in terms of its quota, per, per capita quota. So I think um, for, for those Utahns who want to see um, less density of bars, especially, uh, they can be uh, proud or comfortable with the fact that, that we still have probably the least density in the country, um, but also for those folks who are wanting to see more licenses open up, um, this definitely brings us closer um, than we have been previously, for sure. Okay. I know another provision of the bill was a tax increase. How, how significant is that tax increase? Um, so there are uh, two different provisions. One is an increase in the beer tax, um, both with beer and heavy beer. Um, 
and that is spanned out over four years. So it's an incremental tax rate. It's not one that you see all at once this year. Um, and consumers will will feel that right when you go mm-hmm. and buy your um, what we call off-prem beer, but basically grocery store beer um, and, and uh, convenience store beer. I think um, the statistic I heard is it will raise it by about a penny um, at the most three pennies or three cents, right, um, on a transaction. Um, and then there was also a very slight minor increase in the markup for wine and spirits. So where the markup has been previously 88% on spirits or wine or cider, that now will be 88.5%. Uh, that money will, uh, the increase in that money will go to the general fund. There's some money that will go to the Pamela Atkinson um, Homelessness Trust Fund. And then on the beer increase, um, that some of that increase will be immediately directed to compliance uh, officers with SBI so that they can do more compliance and enforcement. And, and then additional or excess uh, raised funds will, will go to the general fund. And that takes us to a segue. My understanding is that three new compliance positions are going to be funded as part of this bill. What will these people do and to what extent is that, how big an increase in your compliance staff does that represent? So it's interesting, you know, Representative uh, Burton worked really hard. I think he listened to a lot of stakeholders, both from industry and, of course, from prevention and public safety. And what he wanted to really accomplish, I think, um, this is my observation, is um, in looking at some of the, you know, uh, license increases, really wanted to make sure that that balance was right, that if we're going to, you know, if he's going to advocate to increase licenses, he wants to make sure that there's an increase in funding and concerted effort to to um, beef up, right, uh, compliance and public safety efforts. So this actually will fund SBI officers. So those, those three employees will fall under DPS, public safety. Those will not be my employees. Okay. Of course, we will work really collaboratively and really um, in tight partnership. They will be available to do... Um, compliance stuff. So they will be, my team, right, will be on the front end doing education. We'll be working through audits. Uh, hey, do you have everything that you need? Oh, you don't have this thing that you're supposed to have. Why is that? And, and you need to get that in place like today so that when these compliance staff from DPS come, they can make sure, they, they can then work on the compliance and enforcement piece, right? Possibly issuing violations and other things if people are not compliant with the law. Um, they will be doing this in in any environment, but but I think the priority for Representative Burton was to see them in the off-premise environment, which is uh, grocery stores, convenience stores, to make sure that that those stores and retailers are compliant with the new definition of beer, and that they don't have products in those environments that they shouldn't have. Okay, Tiffany. Before we go. Over the last couple of years, there have been major staffing issues at a number of the state-run liquor stores, and I, I don't know whether this falls directly into approval or not, but have the staffing issues uh, gotten better? Are you able to attract personnel? I am pleased to say yes, with a big old <laughs> exclamation mark. Um, is it, have we solved it? No, because no leader of any public enterprise or private enterprise, right, should ever rest on their laurels in terms of workforce, staffing issues, and compensation. This is something we will continue to monitor, um, it, and, we, and we do continue to monitor it. But I will tell you, with the help and support of Governor Cox, with the help and support of a really incredible legislature, they have, have funded through a number of different initiatives and efforts. Uh, we're truly competitive um, in terms of what we're able to, to offer with compensation, um, our, our retail and 
warehouse employees. Um, and so, no, our turnover has gone from about 120% turnover, which is horrible, um, even for retail, to about uh, a, a, a approximately mid-70%, which, again, that's still high for retail. Um, but when you look at where we've brought it from 120% down into the 70s, we're really excited about that. We're also doing career development programs um, and other incentive programs so that not only are our employees compensated properly, but they have opportunities to develop, right, and to move up in, in at DABS or in state government in general. Um, and they feel bought in and invested. So we're going to continue to work hard. Um, and make sure that we have a great work environment for our employees, but also that our customers have a better customer service experience because we have a happier workforce um, and our stores are more fully staffed. We've been speaking with Department of Alcohol Beverages Services Director Tiffany Clausen. On Monday, March 18th, Park City Leadership will hold its 30th Community Forum. Here with a preview is Miles Raderman. Good morning, Miles. Good morning, Roger. So, Miles, talk to us a little bit about the history of these forums. Well, um, you know, each year, actually, for over 50 years, I've uh, run city tours um, for elected officials and the leadership class and other community members to other communities uh, similarly situated to Park City or where I lived before in Christopher, Colorado. And uh, we would go and see what other people were doing. And so in honor of the 30th anniversary of the leadership program this year, I decided that I would bring some of the people who've inspired me in some of these other communities, which include Aspen and, and uh, Telluride and, and um, Jackson Hole and so forth. I would bring them to Park City for a forum and let you hear from them firsthand so that people didn't have to travel for hours and you could just come to the Santee Auditorium on Monday, March 18th from 7 to 9 to a free event sponsored by Leadership Park City and uh, the city itself, and um, that I would introduce these people. And, and what, how will the, the flow of the evening go? How, how, how will things proceed? Um, well, basically, I'm going to moderate. Um, I'm going to moderate this forum, I guess it would be, or it's not a lecture. It's really I'm going to ask questions of each of them. And I could tell you I have Paul Anderson uh, from Aspen, who's an author and a journalist and uh, has been uh, there doing this for 50 years. In fact, all of these people I've known about 50 years. And so I was trying to get people um, who had lived in these communities, embedded, been embedded in these communities. Uh, they're not just... Uh, they're not just um, uh, people who, um, you know, come lately to it. They've all lived the life in these resort communities and been involved, totally involved in these communities. And I'll be asking them questions about where they came from, how they saw their communities evolve, how they're dealing with some of their issues. So that's what I have been uh you know, trying to put together this panel, and we'll have six people on the panel, including Rhonda Sedaris, our very own from Park City, but also uh, Wendy Jaquit from uh, Sun Valley Kitchen, and Rick Silverman from Telluride, and Ralph Garrison, who has worked with many of these communities around the country. And I take it that 
talking to these people about what they have seen in the past and the way they've seen those communities develop, you're hoping that that will give us some concept of how we, what, we, what we can expect in the future and how to deal with the challenges of ongoing development. Well, you know, I, I don't know if they're, they're not seers any more than I am, but, you know, again, they have a wealth of experience, and I'll ask them to talk about that, and I'll ask them to talk about how their communities are dealing with so many very same issues, traffic, child care, affordable housing, you know, divisiveness in the government, how they're dealing with them, and whether they are optimistic about the futures of their communities. Uh, again, each of these people has dug into their communities. They're not going anywhere. And uh, this is their life. This is where they live. And so I thought their perspective, uh, especially with 50 years of experience, would be valuable to us. Hopefully they can give us some sense of optimism. But I'm not sure they're all optimistic. That, that'll be interesting for me to elicit from them. And, of course, we'll have plenty of time for community um, input or questions and answers, and also KPCW will be broadcasting this live from the Santa Auditorium that night. Miles, actually, I think what we're going to do is record it and then put it on the website so that so that our listeners oh, can okay. access it at any time they want to. Um, so will we will be making it available? Um, uh, rather I than see. so it won't be broadcast live. It'll be on the website. Fine, great, exactly. So. As you're preparing, Miles, which, you mentioned a couple of issues, but what are the sort of three or four busy, biggest challenges that you'll be saying we have that you'd like to get the perspective of these other leaders on? Well, again, you know, I think um, I think we have, I kind of call it industrial strength nostalgia. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're, we're, we're all kind of uh, guilty of that. And I don't know if it's guilty. I mean, it's, it's kind of normal, you know, you look at your past, and you look at why you moved to some of these places uh, and what that represented to you. And you've all seen drastic mega changes uh, over the 50 years that, you know, I've been in these communities and they've been in these communities. And so I'm really going to ask about how their communities have, have accommodated the changes and what they think that means for the future. Are they attracting new residents who are also committed to preserving something. And I'm going to ask them, you know, people always say, we want to keep the soul of these communities. Well, what exactly does that mean? I mean, what are we talking about when we say the soul of these communities? What are we talking about when we ask about carrying capacity? How do you measure that? How do you put that together somehow? Um, I don't really know, uh, you know, but these are people who are also, no, these are people who are smarter than me. I'm just going to say almost smart. No. These are people <laughs> smarter than me who have dealt with these same issues, and their perspective, I think, would be interesting. And if not interesting, at least entertaining. Uh, I can tell you each of them is an entertaining person in their own right. Um, I, as I said, I've known them. They've helped me. We've worked together on various issues, um, and I've learned from them. So as I look back, and, and I think uh, most people know this is my last year of running the leadership program. So this is kind of a swan song for me in terms of bringing in people that I respect and have inspired me and have entertained me, quite frankly, and, and to hear from them. And quite frankly, most of them don't know each other either. So they're meeting almost for the first time. I think they've heard of each other, but I'm not sure they know each other. So I thought it would be an interesting dynamic. And last year we did the community lecture and I had 
um, you know, um, like Deidre Speak from Park City Mountain Resort and Todd Bennett from Deer Valley, Nathan Rafferty. And, and uh, so that was the, the, the corporate entity, you know. Now each of these people are speaking from the community side of a, of a town that has, is dependent on the ski industry. Miles, and, you know, that, that dynamic will be interesting. Miles, do any of these communities, have, have any of these communities done an especially effective job with workforce housing such that we could try to learn from their models? Well, um, you know, Aspen is the granddaddy of this whole thing. And so Paul Anderson um, was a reporter for an editorialist from 40-some years at the Aspen Times. So, uh, you know, he's seen it firsthand. He has not run the program. He's been an observer. He's been, a, you know, a journalist. Um, but he'll certainly be able to talk about that and what it means when you, when the government runs a program like that, which has its ups and its downs, its pluses and its minuses. And I'm kind of aware of that, but we could question them on that. I will question them on that. Do they see that it's successful? Because all the rest of us have been emulating what Aspen has accomplished over 40 years now. And, you know, the question is, how, how successful has it been? Mm -hmm. Okay, once again, what are the logistics for the evening? The date is? So the logistics today is pretty simple. It's Monday, March 18th, so just uh, coming up here in, what, two and a half weeks or something like that. And it'll be 7 to 9 p.m., at the Santee Auditorium, which is in the third floor of the library at 1255 Park Avenue. And it's free and open to the public. And KPCW, as you said, will record it uh, so that people can access it on your website uh, at other times. But staying in person, I think, will be an entertaining evening. Um, so this is not going to be an evening for geeks. This is an entertaining evening of people who are going to talk like you talk about it you know what's going on in these places and how have they dealt with these issues we've been talking to miles Raderman about the upcoming 30th leadership park city community forum miles thanks for calling in from where it's far warmer than the eight degrees we have here in park oh, city oh it's far warmer here i can tell you that for a fact thanks roger a little local news. Wasatch County residents living around the Jordan L reservoir are invited to a town hall wednesday afternoon kpcw's grace dorfler has this Wednesday's event will be the second listening town hall focused on Wasatch County residents in Hideout and other neighborhoods around the Jordanelle area. County Council Member Luke Searle says it's an effort to help more residents learn about what's going on in the county and share feedback with leaders about what they need. We want to make sure that the people in all parts of our county feel heard. Several entities, including Wasatch County School District, the Town of Hideout, and High Valley Transit will join the county for the town hall. Searle says the event is designed to make local government feel more accessible to the public. We're there to listen. We're there to take all the questions and to see and prioritize what topics for the people are there. He says local entities try to solve problems discussed at the town hall when they can. After the last Jordanelle area listening session in August 2023, the county repaired some problematic potholes and discussed ideas to reduce traffic noise from semi-trucks. Searle says it's important to hear from residents as that region of the county grows. He says it can also help locals understand where their tax dollars go and how to get the services they need. If they have an explanation of why their taxes are going up and where, where those monies are going, I think that goes a long way. And I think that we have an obligation to share that to all the taxpayers. The listening town hall begins at 4 p.m. in the retreat at Jordanelle Clubhouse in Camas. It will last about an hour and a half. Members of the public are asked to RSVP online, where there's also an option to attend virtually. 
Grace Dorfler, KPCW News. So figure skating is often thought of as a young person's game. Indeed, the master's division for figure skaters is open to anyone over the ripe old age of 28. So it is particularly impressive that Aaron Krentz just won the World's Masters Pairs Figure Skating Championship in Lombardy, Italy with her younger partner, Chris Obzanski. They join us here in the studio this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having us. Okay, so, uh, Aaron, when yes. did you first start competitive figure skating? And tell us a little bit about the arc of your career. I started skating when I was eight, and my first competition was um, regionals, which is a qualifying competition when I was 11 years old in 1971. It was the 1972 regionals because of the... Uh, of the time frame. And, and what, what events did you compete with and did you continue to compete through, since then? Yeah, that was singles and I did regionals all the way through my um, sophomore year of college and uh, then I took time off and worked and stuff. Um, my children started skating when they were age three and then I decided to go back to compete in the adult division um, when my children were young. So after a long gap, you went back to it. Is that, is that unusual? I mean, for someone to take, take time out like that to live, live a life and then go back to skating? I don't think that's super unusual. No? Chris, did you, was that, was your, what's your career arc been like? So I started skating when I was three. Um, I played hockey for about six years, and then I switched into figure skating. Um, at the time, there were some issues with the hockey league, so they kind of fell apart, so I wanted to keep skating. And so my mom was taking a learn to skate class and she's like, hey, you should come join me. And my coach was my my coach at the time. He was like, yeah, you know, you, you have a future in figure skating. You should give it a try. And um, I, I fell in love with it and I, I competed until I was 26. And then um, I, I worked a corporate job, got into life, got married, um, had some kids. But then I, I started coaching full time. And so right now I'm a full time coach. And so Aaron approached me. Um, about five years ago, I was working with her as a, as a coach, and she's like, hey, what do you think about competing? And I was like, yeah, sure, let's give it a try. And uh, so we competed pair skating, and my background's in ice dancing. Um, so I, pair skating was completely different for me. I had to learn new tricks and throws and jumps, and it was uh, very challenging for me. One of the things about being in this area and interviewing a lot of athletes is that for so many of them they're young they have the olympic dream and the idea of being an athlete defines who they are in a very very meaningful way both of you have done other things first and it, this is you're not chasing an olympic dream what brings you back what drives you to want to do this because the amount of work it takes to compete at the level you're competing at is enormous talk to us about what drives you here I find that I work harder on the sessions when I have a competition to work towards. It um, makes me focus more on making sure I get all my elements in. Uh, as Chris can tell you, it gets me to run my program, run our program, which keeps your cardio up because if I didn't have a competition to work for, I would not run a four minute program. <laughs> uh, for me, I love the process. Um, just the just learning and developing new skills. Um, yeah, I like competing as well, and I, you know, I do like winning, <laughs> but I, I really love the process, so that's what brings me back each time. Um, you, you know, I've been doing this my whole life, and I'm still learning things, and uh, I still, I, there's still things that keep me up at night. I'm thinking about them. I'm like, what, what if I did this? What if I did that? How does this choreography work? 
you know, how's this skater going to develop? And so it, it's the process that I really love. Now, in order to compete at this level, uh, I, it, it takes obviously a lot of dedication, but it also takes a lot of time. Talk to us a little bit about the kinds of practice rituals that you pursue and how that changes over the course of a year, given when competitions are coming up. Yeah, so we uh, just our daily routine. We, we train about an hour and a half a day. Um, we get to the rink. Um, you know, we get to the rink. We warm up our bodies. We go through off-ice lifts. Um, we walk through our program. I was joking with Aaron before with this. I was like, you know, we do it so we remember our steps. You know, at our, at our age, you know, you kind of have to remember <laughs> your steps. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, and then, you know, we, we have a, a timeline and we look at when we have a competition and we kind of lay out when we have to be hitting certain milestones to be prepared for a competition. And, and do you practice here in Park City? We practice here in Park City and in Salt Lake City. And, and, and what facilities are you able to use to do your practices? The Park City Ice Arena by the hospital, mm -hmm. um, Salt Lake City Sports Recreation Complex, we call Steiner and uh, Cottonwood. Well, my understanding is that there's competition for ice time uh, among the various recreational things. So do you find yourself having to practice at 5 in the morning in strange times, or are you able to get more civilized times, or a little of both? Yes, we practice at all times, <laughs> whenever we can get ice. Mm -hmm. So yes, the, um, you know, the, the ice rink is pretty, especially the Park City Ice Arena is pretty um, booked. So we, we try to find empty sessions. For what we do, you know, we're doing lifts across the ice you know, at high speeds. We really have to find quiet sessions which are, is, is quite hard to do sometimes. And by quiet session, you basically need a substantial amount of the ice to yourself. Yes, <laughs> yes. In fact, when we went over to Bormio to compete, we got to spend two days in Milan at the ice lab. Well, actually, Bergamo. I'm not sure if I said that right. Um, at the ice lab, which is an ISU center of excellence for pairs, and the International Skating Union created that facility because pair teams were having a hard time getting the type of pair ice that they needed. And that was really fun that they allowed us to uh, um, share the some time with them. And that's interesting. It brings up, up a question, which is, you know, as we talk to a lot of athletes, there are these organizations that support the young athletes who are on a trajectory toward international competition. Is there any support for you guys in the master's division? And oh. who, who, who does that support and what kind of support is there? Well, the adult community in figure skating is, um, is excellent. I mean, we're very tight knit community. Um, we're very supportive of each other. Um, you know, I think, at, I think at nationals last year, there was over 500 starts. Um, so that was probably like, you know, close to 300 some athletes, uh, ranging from anywhere in the mid twenties all the way up to mid eighties. So there's a really tight knit community. Now, um, you know, with us figure skating, you know, they're obviously their goal is to support their Olympic and international athletes, but they do, um, you know, they do support us by having well run events and very organized, um, competitions. Are, are there sponsorships at the master's level that, 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 that sort of you know sort of support what you're doing? Not that I know. <laughs> Not yet is what we're gonna say. Right, yeah. So, I actually, you know what, I've been, I was a young skater, I've been the parents of skaters, Team USA skaters, um, I've been on club boards, I've worked at, I'm, I'm an official now, I think it's important to, that we support the young skaters to make sure that we have competitive international teams. So I'm happy to have, 
the money go to the young skaters. That being said, I, I, would, I would hate for any adult to not feel like they couldn't participate because of finances. And I'm sure there would, you know, if they would contact someone, people would be very helpful. Well, that, that help does sort of take us to when you're talking about an international competition, like, like in Italy, I mean, I, there's some substantial expenses that, that, are, that are born, which I take it you guys have to bear yourselves. Yes, we, <laughs> we are self-funded. Right. Um, you mentioned that your, your practice uh, schedule is somewhat driven by the competition schedule. Can you explain to us the sort of arc of a year in terms of the competitions that you guys might participate in? Yeah, so um, our season will start ramping up usually in um, January. I mean, with, with international competitions, the timeline's a little different than the national um, season. So. But we'll, we'll start ramping up our training usually in January. We will um, compete usually at a sectional competition in March. Then we'll do adult nationals in um, April. So this year, the, our adult nationals is in Cleveland. Um, and that will be beginning of April. Clearly an epicenter of, of ice skating. <laughs> um, so so the, the first one is in March. Where is that one? Uh, that will be in Santa Rosa, um, California, and we're, we're actually opting out of that one. There aren't enough teams, so we have a choice that can go there and basically compete against ourselves, or we can um, save some money and train here. So we're opting out of that one and getting a bye to nationals. And, and you get a bye because of your past performance? Uh, just because there aren't enough teams. Because there aren't enough teams. Okay, so you go to nationals. If you're successful there, what happens after that? So we, we couldn't. If we wanted to, we could go to uh, the World Championships in Oberstdorf, Germany. Mm -hmm. um, we're probably not going to do that this year. Aaron has some conflicts with judging, and uh, I'm doing some things with coaching, so we're opting out of that this year. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the other things you do to support yourselves. You mentioned you're a full-time coach. What, what kind of coaching do you do, and who do you coach for? Uh, so I coach at, in the, at the Park City Ice Arena. I also coach in Salt Lake. Um, I teach mostly ice dancing as well as skating skills for all different levels. I have some little kids I have all the way up to adult skaters and um, I also do some choreography as well. Okay. And um, developing on athletes, do you, do you develop athletes that you hope to put into sort of national teams and have you been successful with that? Yeah, so I, I, uh, I've, I'm, I've produced uh, a few national teams. I had one, one of my teams, um, the boys from Park City, they just uh, won nationals in their division. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I have, I, and I work with a lot of Team USA skaters and uh, kids that are aspiring to be Team USA. Something tells me that um, it's probably inspiring to the kids to see a coach who is also still competing, that, 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 that there's a leadership role in that, that that is pretty, you know, it's pretty powerful. Well, they definitely don't have any excuse when <laughs> they don't want to do something. When you I, can do it. Because I'll, I'll, I'll be on their case because I'm out there working too, so. Aaron, what, what activities are you involved in to support this, this your, your skating? Um, well, <laughs> um, I was a stay-at-home mom, mm -hmm. although I did raise two figure skaters. I was going to say, you, you produce figure skaters in a different I, sense of yes, the word, I take right. it. that's <laughs> right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I've been fortunate, and uh, now my husband retired a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. so we're just kind of enjoying the... Uh, You're not coaching? Are you coaching at all? No, judge? well, I judge, so... Um, oh, tell us about that. So judges on the... On the judging side, mm -hmm. not the technical panel, can't get paid. So, um, but I find it very fulfilling to watch these young skaters and you know encourage them through testing and competition um, 
to uh, go through the sport. And, you know, I can use my experience too to, um, to show them that it's a process and to um, help them or hopefully help them in their careers and journey along the skating. So what kind of schedule do you have in terms of judging? Do you do, do, do you, and what, what well, levels do you judge? You t I judge all the way from Snowplow Sam, which is the three-year-olds, up to the 80-year-old <laughs> adult events, yes. But, um, oh, I love judging Snowplow Sams. But um, I, Utah has a very active um, competition community, and we pretty much have a maybe eight big competitions a year yeah, so yeah i i do all those i do all the, i do testing whenever i'm asked to test i never like to turn down tests because that's how you get the kids to move forward um along the levels mm -hmm. so uh yeah I, I try i try to be a very active part of the utah judging community and because both of you are so involved in this world how, how would you characterize the sort of status of the the Ice, the excuse me, the pairs figure dancing world in terms of development. Uh, wh what are we doing in terms of facilitating, you know, a strong national team? Do you think we are where we need to be? And if not, wh what needs to change? Well, on a national level, we in, in ice dancing, we have some of the best skaters in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we're, we're going to have probably the world champions this year in ice dancing. In pair skating, um, we're struggling a little bit, but we, we have. Um, we have some kids on the national circuit that are quite strong, um, and I, I shouldn't say struggle, but it's just the teams are the teams are very very new compared to the international circuit. At a local level, um, ice dancing and pair skating is still very very new. Um, you know, for years in Utah, it's been let's let's get the kids to do freestyle, let's teach them jumps and spins. Um, you know, we, ice dancing is still evolving, and uh, pair skating is also evolving. I mean, when I think of pair skating in Utah, there's only like one pair, two pair teams in the state besides us that that train, and they train in Ogden. So it's still very, very um, new. And um, as we look at sort of this this next Winter Olympics, um, I, what I'm what I'm trying to get at is, do you feel as though the organization supporting the development of the young athletes is doing what it needs to do on a national level. Yeah, I, I feel I feel they are. Um, I mean, I think we have. I think U.S. Figure Skating is doing a great job of, of taking these athletes and and putting them in situations where they can develop their talents. Um, I mean, I see. I have. A, I still have a few friends that compete at a high level, and um, you know they're getting they're getting the support they need um, to to compete internationally and at a world level. I think it's harder for the young kids to get that support. I mean, there's only so much money out there. So, you know, it, it, in, a, in, in a lot of ways, it's coming out of the parents' pockets until they reach a certain level and U.S. Figure Skating steps in and starts funding them. Okay, we've been speaking with uh, Chris Obzanski and Aaron Krentz, the pair that recently just won the World Masters Pairs Figure Skating Championship in Lombardia, Italy. Thanks for spending time with us this morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you.